Hey, before we get started, we wanted to ask you, our listeners, for your feedback for our upcoming Season 3 retrospective episode. We're asking for submissions, and you can write in or record a short audio blurb telling us about your favorite moment in the third season of Northern Exposure. We'll give you a shout-out or play a recording on air when we discuss Season 3 as a whole. Send your submissions to the email address northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening to the show and writing in. And now, back to your regular broadcast. The problem here is that the view is obscured by um, what I assume is packing material, foam, maybe excelsior. And the objects, as you can see, they overlap each other. They, they vary significantly in density. Well. Wow. In terms of these, these other masses, I would just be, uh, I'd be shooting in the dark. Thanks, Flashman. You've been a big help. Well, it, it, they're obviously made of some soft material, so you'll never get a, a decent image with x-ray. What you need is a CT scan. Or... Or what? Open it. Open it? Of course, I'm categorically opposed to that. However, it's the only way you'll be absolutely unequivocally certain about what's inside. But you never heard that from me. I really like that quote, that the only way to ensure that you can actually solve it is if you unequivocally open it. Kind of a Schrodinger's cat over there, wouldn't you agree, Lee? Yeah, you know, the object that they're talking about is a parcel. This package that has arrived in Sicily and no one has come to claim it, but uh, it has so many stamps, lots of mystery. It seems to have traveled the world almost. And uh, everyone in town seems to be curious. They want to crack it open. Joel suggests, really, you know, the easiest solution is <laughs> to open it rather than, you know, look at an x-ray, a CT scan, he suggests. But um, yeah, there's, there's only one way, he says. Yeah, it's a lot of subtext being packed into that one sentence right there. I think it's personally... I think it's about like triumph and coming through with um, the fear of getting out of your comfort zone. So I think like there's a quote from James Baldwin that says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Mm. And that's what I kind of think about when I'm thinking about this quote that Joel was saying, I'm just opening the box. I'm just going forward. Yeah, that there's a lot of uh, room for interpretation. I really like that that application of the quote here. Yeah. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. What, what are we talking about here? Like, <laughs> This is uh, the TV show Northern Exposure. This is the third, sorry, 20th episode in the third season. It's called The Final Frontier, and we are the Northern Overexposure podcast. Uh, we like to overanalyze the show, and every episode we like to introduce the show to someone who hasn't seen it before. You know, I've seen the show a few times, Charles, and this is your first time watching every episode. So you kind of have that fresh take. Yeah, so I've never seen it. I'm looking at it with fresh eyes, trying to get in, trying to overanalyze the show like we both do. And really, that's just our mission statement is just to overanalyze every detail we can uh, in every episode of Northern Exposure. Yeah, and we are. we should mention we're also we're recording this over... Uh, like Skype, essentially. We're just like talking to each other on the phone. Because of the um, COVID-19 pandemic, we're trying to stay more than six feet away from each other. <laughs> yeah, I am quarantined at my uh, parents' house, actually. And I'm just in my childhood room. And it's kind of funny <laughs> because there's like a, a ribbon that goes across through my room. It's like uh, like 
trains. Kachuchu like trains. Yeah, yeah, it was it was obviously built for like a six year old, but like I sleep with that every night. Like it just goes around my room right there. Bringing it back. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm like currently. Uh, I've got the window open because it's pretty hot in my house right now and I don't want to turn on the AC uh, for fear of that sort of interfering with our recording. But you'll probably hear like a car drive by or some birds squawking or something. So apologies, but uh, we're doing our best outside of the uh, our, our ever-changing studio, <laughs> podcast studio. Yeah, outside of the normal circumstances that we're usually in. Well, let's talk about this episode. We mentioned the title, The Final Frontier. Yeah, I think that's an aptly named title for the episode there's a lot of things about a quote-unquote final frontier and what i mean by that is that there's a lot of challenges and a lot of exploring both literally exploring and like spiritually exploring within this episode so i'm on board with this yeah that's interesting so the idea of the final frontier is often touched upon in chris's sort of uh k-bear monologues where he is um musing about these explorers that found like the North Pole and the South, you know, just like the Arctic and, and relating that to the Voyager mission, which uh, according to Chris is at this point in time, uh, when the show was broadcast, it was 7.2 billion kilometers from earth today. That's something more like, you know, it's, it's over 22 billion kilometers. So it's gone a far way. And you know, like you're saying, the final frontier can be physical, like it can be somewhere, the final frontier on Earth, or maybe out even in space, but it can also be something more internal. Maybe that's relating to Hauling and Jesse the Bear. What else could that relate to? I think it relates to Maurice as well. Yeah, like the final frontier is his bigotry. Oh, so he needs to conquer this. Uh, this is another sort of obstacle that he's trying to conquer is... His bigotry with uh, Ron and Eric. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a, the discrimination that he uh, used. I meant to say that mostly as a punchline, but I like, <laughs> I, I am very serious about this. Like he does need to conquer that. Yeah. No, his, no, no. Uh, his homophobia. No, I think it does apply. Yeah. It's funny though. I like how, do you think Ron and Eric think uh, that Maurice is actually homophobic or do you think, because it almost feels like their approach to Maurice is, okay, he just wants more money. So they keep offering, like, it almost feels like they think Maurice is pretending to be homophobic just to get more money out of them. But I think it's a little more obvious than that. I don't know. Do you think they recognize it? I think they definitely recognize it. I think they recognize it so much that they're willing to just be like, that's already a fact. Like, water is wet. Let's just accept it. And then keep. That's their sort of method of dealing with it, I guess, right? Yeah. I would think that in the time that it was being filmed, that was like, the most acceptable thing like i remember reading fan mail that we had gotten and by the way if you have any questions please email us <laughs> at northern overexposure podcast at gmail.com but okay back to your regular broadcasting i remember getting a fan mail that emailed and said what ron and eric were being shown on television was actually really groundbreaking because it wasn't that just wasn't done and especially to show them in a positive light like i'm sure other television shows have shown homosexual people but this was the one that had like really tried to go forward with it yeah so i think this is the most they were able to do yeah and so like ron and eric's approach to maurice is really just sort of like just go along with it and in the end maybe he'll change you know maybe that was more of a accepted approach at the time and um that's what's happening in this episode you know if we are to believe that ron and eric recognize that this is not just a something that maurice is putting on he actually is homophobic if they recognize that, then they are just going along with it. 
But by the end of the episode, Maurice, again, it's sort of like that change where a character seems to make a great change, but still persists or insists that they're the same old, same old. Like Maurice says something like, you know, I still don't support your way of life, but I have to hand it to you. That was like very clever, your whole business operation. So, you know, it's like, it seems like he's um, making progress with his homophobia, but he doesn't want to admit it. Yeah, it's kind of like a Schrodinger's cat situation right here where I'm going to use a very basic understanding of okay. uh, what Schrodinger's <laughs> cat is, but he's both accepting and also not accepting. So it's both Ah, at the same yes. Time. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I like it. Yeah. Also, on the topic of uh, this episode being broadcast in the past, I thought how strange it was to think about Chris musing about the Voyager. And I, I just couldn't help but think, I was like, I wonder what they think, like if they existed today. Like, if you could just teleport them to today's time, like, how much we've advanced in uh, space exploration. Like, we're trying to get to Mars. Like, we're trying to send, like, our first person to Mars. But we've already, like, been there. We have rovers over there. We have so much stuff. We have private entrepreneurs that are building their own rockets without relying on the United States government. Like, we've done so much advancement. And yet, when we watch this episode, we're watching the muse on, like, what it was to be in 1992. And it's just such a time capsule watching this television series. Yeah, Chris even uh, relates the story of that uh, paddle to the sea to like the kid in the story is too young to go on an adventure. So he just sets off his little toy boat to go on the adventure for him. And he relates that to, you know, us, you know, earthlings are, are not advanced enough yet to live on another planet. But one day, you know, one day we'll get there. And so, yeah, like, you know, in, in 2020, uh, we're getting a lot closer than we were, you know, 30 years ago. So it is interesting to view it as that sort of time capsule. Again, you know, Voyager is over 10 billion kilometers further uh, from Earth than it was in 1992. Again, this episode has Chris being featured as like this Greek chorus figure. Yeah. Where he's just speaking in the background. And he talks about Robert Perry, who was an explorer in the 1800s who reached, quote unquote, the farthest north which is the most northerly latitude reached by explorers before the conquest of the North Pole, rendering the expression obsolete. So he's talking about all these explorers, these famous ones that went through, and I just, I really want him to contribute to the episode there. Like, I want him (laughs) to be involved in a plot line. Yeah, we talked about this last episode, and it's been happening very frequently in in these past few episodes where Chris is just, and again, I really like the term, like the Greek chorus. He doesn't actually step out of the booth and interact with uh, other characters face-to-face very much. He's really just hammering in those themes, which I think is a really expert use of the character. Having said that, you know, it, it might feel lacking. It might leave some of us wanting a little more just to see more Chris interaction. Okay, so let's just get into it. Uh, it looks like that we have three plot lines that are segueing throughout this episode. Number one is Hauling and Jesse the Bear. Uh, number two is Maurice and Ron and Eric. And number three is this mysterious package that Maggie and Joel are involved with. So which one should we go into first? Let's start with um, Hauling and Jesse the Bear. That's kind of the beginning of the episode. And um, I want to mention that the episode was written by Jeffrey Vlaming. Uh, it was directed by Tom Moore. But I think it's interesting to take into account the writing of this episode. This episode was a spec script that was submitted. Uh, so this was not a writer that was part of the show or part of the writer's room or you know, one of the showrunners. This is someone who just wrote a script for fun, sent it in, and uh, it was bought you know, and later produced in this season. 
So this is actually this is actually where Jeffrey Vlaming got his start uh, in you know writing for television, and I just think it's pretty interesting. You know, just imagine being a filmmaker or just a fan of the show and thinking, hey, I'd love to write for a TV show. Let me pick Northern Exposure. What could happen with these characters? So we're at a point in the show where enough has been established to where an outsider who's not familiar with maybe the entire production Bible or you know the, the same like writer's room, showrunners, what they're thinking of all the time. This is someone who just watches the show and can pick up on all of these clues and just be like, yeah, this is a uh, this is how the characters would react if this happened. Yeah, I like that. Um, and you can also tell that perhaps this is like an outsider writing it because it has a lot of callbacks to previous episodes that somebody who had been diligently watching the show would recognize. So, like a fan that was writing a television episode would try to incorporate. So Jesse the Bear, yeah. Rod and Eric, those ideas of bringing um, past characters back into the forefront aren't usually done in Northern Exposure, I find. Like, the only recurring characters is usually just Adam and Eve. Yeah, that's true. And actually, we get sort of a snub. Uh, you know, I've actually forgotten her name, but the the lady that was elected mayor of Sicily. Oh, um, uh, Edna? Yes, yeah, Edna Hancock. Uh, she is snubbed in this episode because they call a town hall meeting and, uh, you know, we're talking about bringing back old plot lines from, from older episodes. Uh, they just kind of write her off. No, she, she was out of town, so she's not available for this episode. <laughs> I remember... Yeah, but ahead. it's another callback. Um, I'm sorry, that is like the third callback that I forgot, like another recurring character to bring it back. But I'm sorry, what were you saying? I was just saying I remember that uh, we were excited after that. It was uh, Democracy in America. We were like, I wonder if we're going to see Edna Hancock again after this. And... Uh, so far, it's not looking good. They had one chance to bring her back so far, and they haven't. So, uh, All right. I'm, a, I'm generally a fan of bringing back characters. So I am happy that Ron and Eric and Jesse yeah. DeBear are referenced again. Though, um, spoiler alert, I don't think Jesse DeBear is really coming back. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that was him. Yeah, yeah. This is um, in this opening scene. I really, I really like the opening scene because uh, Holling is telling this long setup joke. He's got like a small crowd gathered around him in the brick. And then Ed comes in, he's looking very serious, but he has to wait until Holling finishes the joke before he can deliver the news that, that Jesse has died. And it's very solemn, but at the end of the scene, one of the bar patrons says, who's Jesse? And Ed says, Jesse was a bear. So <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's a great example of just Northern exposure because it starts off as a joke trying to be serious you know, at the end of the joke, but then, you know, at the end of the scene, there's that kind of comedic button. So it's like a comedy show trying to be like a drama show, but not taking itself too seriously. And that's kind of how I used to describe Northern Exposure to my friends all the time. Just like, it's a comedy uh, that's really a drama at its heart, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. That's a great observation that you made because the scene starts with the joke, but it's not actually being played as a joke. And then it ends with a joke that's being played dramatically. So it's like a like a switcheroo right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice little inversion and never gets too serious, but also uh, they want to tell a serious story. And that's what happens to Hauling, you know, after he finds out that Jesse has died. Let's see, they they Ed brings Hauling to Jesse's bones, like where he found Jesse dead. Yeah, the bones of where he last lies. And Holling posits that, you know, Jesse probably died last summer, just looking at the the remains. 
There's no sign of hunters, no broken bones like you'd see if, if it were a moose attack. Jesse was just very old. Yeah, and Ed always thought that Jesse would go out like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid style. Yeah, I really like that, you know, that comparison. You know, you think of this great monster, this beast. It's like he's not going to go out without a fight, but, you know, it kind of looks like he just died of old age. And also the music that ties into this scene. It's got that sort of twangy, sorrowful guitar, and you got like the accordion playing. It's a nice thought. It's a nice sort of, in a way, eulogy, but it's the best we got. How long do bears live for, actually? Yeah, we speculated last episode that Jesse was probably a brown bear. So let's see, a grizzly bear typically has a lifespan of 20 to 25 years. A marsican brown bear, 35 years. Okay, so taking the average between the two, that would be 30 years, since we're not entirely too sure what type of bear Jesse the Bear was. Uh, And that's a long time for an adversary to last for. So if we presume that Jesse the Bear started his um, rampage, rampage. (laughs) Um, like when the bear got to adulthood, which probably only takes like a few years, that means that Holling knew Jesse for like 20 plus years. Yeah, a couple decades. And yeah, it's not easy for Holling to sort of readjust to this new world. I really like the sort of themes that happen in this uh, in this plot line, which I'm sure we're going to get into. But just to kind of close out this scene, we get a really nice ending shot. It's very high up, very wide. And uh, Ed actually leaves Hauling alone with the bones. Hauling, Hauling wants to just stick around and kind of, I guess, meditate on the idea here. Uh, but you see because we're so high up and almost like a bird's eye vantage point that you see all these giant, you know, the giant bones. It almost looks like a, a, like a dig site for like a dinosaur or something. Yeah. So we learn about Holling and Jesse's relationship through a conversation that Holling has with a bar patron. Well, really this, this patron is, I guess, trying to celebrate Jesse's demise in a way, but that kind of gets, uh, it makes Holling angry. Like the patron says something to the effect of, man, I wish I could have pulled the trigger on that bear. Like, you know, isn't that right? You know, kind of like buddy, buddy cheers, but Holling is actually quite offended. And he comes out with the insult, you know, Jesse's twice the man you are and he's a bear. And, you know, he almost gets (laughs) in a, in a fight over, I guess, sort of like this respect that he had for his nemesis, Jesse. It's, it's interesting, you know, Shelly points out the double standard she says to Holling, you know, you, you used to call Jesse all kinds of names all the time. But so like, why, why does it matter if someone else is uh, degrading Jesse? Yeah, I guess it's sort of like we don't speak ill of the dead. So now that Jesse's passed away, he just won't take anyone bad-mouthing him. And I think it's really interesting that game respects game. So he respects yeah. Jesse <laughs> yeah. for all of like the ferocity that he stands for. But I think that mostly that the scene is meant to represent that Holling no longer has the challenge that he's looking for. Um, He doesn't have anywhere to go. And I think this plays into the title card of Final Frontier. He doesn't have that like ultimate goal to be reaching for now that his adversary just peacefully passed away. That wasn't because of him. It was just that Mother Nature took him. So now Holling is just without purpose. Yeah, it's a lot like what Chris is talking about with these explorers exploring like the North Pole and the Arctic and things. And if you go, I was I was unfamiliar with all these names. Edmondson, uh, or sorry, Amundsen, I think is the name. 
Robert Peary and such. And all these people were almost seeming like in competition, trying to get there first, you know, trying to discover this, this geography first. And if you think about it in relation to Halling, it's like his final frontier was Jesse, but someone got there first. Old age beat him to the punch. And, you know, we, we know this because Halling, I think he sits down with Joel or Joel joins him. And Halling uh, explains to Joel, like, what actually happened whenever he encountered Jesse and Jesse, you know, slashed him down his back and all these injuries and broken bones and, and stitches and such. And essentially, it boils down to Halling basically almost died and crawled back to camp like five miles crawling with all these broken bones and injuries. And the one thought that kept him alive was the idea of going back one day and killing Jesse. So he's been fueled by revenge for <laughs> for how long? 20 years or more. Uh, but still, yeah, that 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 sort of flame has been snuffed out in his mind and you know, old age beat him to the punch. Yeah, it's not just that he wanted Jesse to bear to die. He wanted to personally kill him. And I think that Chris has like a similar story going around in the background. Like he talks about climbing Mount Everest and how that was such a huge accomplishment. But now whenever you go there, there's like so much waste on the mountainside. And in fact, there's actually like 26,000 pounds of human excrement found in Mount Everest. Like it's no longer a challenge to climb it. Uh, What was once deemed like this you know, um, the highest mountain that you could ever climb. So I think that those two stories are paralleling each other right there in that like what was once the challenge is no longer to be found. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the idea again of the title, the final frontier, what becomes the final frontier whenever everything has been conquered, you know? And I, th- I like, uh, I don't know if it directly ties into a whole lot, but maybe we can draw some comparison down the line, but I do like Chris's sentiment at the end of one of his monologues. He says, the world is not to be conquered, it's to be protected. So, I don't know, that could be a final frontier of sorts. Oh, that's really interesting. That's like having like an inner peace, like becoming okay with your, yourself so that you don't have to perpetually be moving forward. You can just stay put, and once you stay put, that's the great harmony, that that's the final frontier. Okay, yeah, so now, like... The idea of the final frontier is not conquering other things, not accomplishing things, but it's a more internal uh, harmony. I like that uh, perspective as well. Okay, so further down in the episode, we see that Holland is at the bar and then Shelly comes and retrieves him and says like, hey, okay, don't get mad. Don't get mad. (laughs) They had the best intentions, but they kind of uh, dug up Jesse's grave and put him back together again. (laughs) Yeah, they like reconstructed Jesse's skeleton out of all the bones. And I mean, hey, it is a it is a massive uh, bear skeleton. I like the scene because I really like Hollings' performance here. You know, the way Shelley is going on, it seems like Hollings going to have this outburst or be very upset. Uh, and it is weird. It's like odd to have this giant bear skeleton uh, just standing in the brick on display. But Holling, he does seem happy. I think he replies in the affirmative when she's like, is this okay? Is everything all right? But he's got this almost like confused daze, like um, 
it almost feels like he's about to have this outburst, but also it almost feels like he's completely lobotomized or something. It's it's a very interesting performance. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's like a mixture between wanting to be outraged and being in reverence of uh, Jesse. And I want to say, like, none of the bar patrons were going to talk about the giant dead bear in the room. <laughs> like, like the elephant in the room. It yeah. was just like, it was just in the middle of the bar. Yeah, they were, I think they suggest, maybe Ed suggested, should we move it somewhere else? And Holling says, no, this is a good, this is a good spot for it. And um, let's see, if you go to moosechick.com, the listing for this episode, uh, there is a picture of this bear skeleton. I wonder if it's still on display in the brick today. Uh, but it definitely seems like someone provided a, a picture for this site. I don't know if it's still there, uh, but it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so Holling later, um, I think he wakes up in a cold sweat or what is it? Shelly finds him early one morning. He's setting off. He's got to go on uh, an expedition to find Jesse. It's kind of unclear whether or not um, Holling is saying, you know, Jesse that's not Jesse right there. That's a that's just a pile of bones. It's kind of unclear whether or not Halling is is trying to say, you know, Jesse is an idea, you know, at least at this point, or if he actually does believe that Jesse is still out there and he's sort of delusional. I like to think that he's going through some weird delusion thing, and that later in the episode he comes to the realization that Jesse is not just a bear. He's not just a pile of bones. It's an idea. Right, right. That was my interpretation of it, too, that it was just a delusion at first, but then it comes around like a 180, and then he's like, you know, like you were saying previously, it's an idea. Like, Jesse can be found everywhere. Like, the Jesse, like, what is that thing? It's like the, uh, <laughs> the like, the friends that we, like, the, the the prize was like the friends we made all along, uh, like, <laughs> journey. Like, <laughs> it's like, Jesse was that thing. He it was, was here the prize all along. for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> Jesse was here all along. No, but yeah, it isn't really... I really, I think this might be my favorite. Um, actually, there's a lot of great little conclusions in this episode, but I really like this conclusion of um, of the Jesse the Bear storyline. Uh, Hauling is gone for a lot of the episode here. He returns at the very end. Actually, there's a deleted scene uh, when Hauling is actually in, I believe he's in the Widowmaker Cave, which is where he says he's uh, going to set out for this expedition. But the deleted scene is Hauling. He's got this like cave fire and he's looking through the darkness and the smoke of the fire, and he sees something through the smoke, and obviously we can't see it as the audience, but he's calling out, I think he's calling out to Jesse, uh, he sees it there, staring at him through the smoke, and uh, it seems to be obviously like a hallucination. There's some really cool camera work, because you know we get to see this interesting cave set, and we get to do like the sort of like look point glance, like Holling looks at something, and when we get to see his perspective, it's just kind of smoky and darkness. We don't really see it. But um, the ending of this uh, deleted scene is Holling is trying to get around the fire uh, to this uh, hallucinatory assailant, and um, he sort of falls, <laughs> and he's like, ah. And so I guess that's, we assume that's how he got these injuries. Yeah, I, I think that's the general assumption. And I like that we have back-to-back episodes of bear caves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 that's true. So yeah, he does return to the brick and uh, Shelly is like putting ketchup in the mustard bottles. She's she's really lost, you know, without hauling. And uh, he comes in right at that moment. He's got like a sling. His face is a little slashed up. I like Shelly, you know, well, the way Holling is speaking, he's got this clarity, 
you know, he solved his problem. I like that Shelly says, did you bonk your head? And his answer is several times. <laughs> yeah, and it's got such a pleasant button to end on with the hauling plot. I mean, I, I mean, like we said, I think all of them do. But this one particularly resolves itself pleasantly because hauling is renewed again. It gives the option for Jesse to come back because maybe he actually still is alive. And it just adds to the theme of the episode of, you know, if the one challenge is being conquered, do you just put up for another one? Like look for even beyond uh, land and like shoot for the stars. Okay, that sounded really cheesy, but you get my sentiment. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And and I do think Jesse, I do think Jesse the Berry is dead. I don't think he's coming back, but in the metaphorical sense, you know, well, Hauling says. Well, we don't know if he has any children. <laughs> Jesse Jr. Um, yeah, so that's true. That's very twice true. as vicious as Jesse. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It could he could come back to avenge his father. His spawn could be back. <laughs> but uh, you know, we can at least take the metaphor that uh, Hauling says. You know, Jesse is still out there. He's in the cave. He's also high on the mountaintop, deep under the ocean, and he's way out there in outer space. The idea, I think, is that danger is waiting for us everywhere. And that idea should be terrifying, right? But for some reason, why does Hauling feel invigorated by it? I like it because I think for Hauling, escaping death, that's part of Hauling, and that's part of every all of our lives. You know, we escape death every day in in big ways and, you know, a lot of times in very, very small ways. Like Chris has a really great quote in this episode. He says, there's a lot of ways to blaze a trail. Adventures come in all shapes and sizes, like getting your hair cut or falling in love. Even getting behind the wheel and backing out of the driveway can be a sublime act of faith as well as a monumental act of courage. So, you know, it may be terrifying to think that danger awaits us uh, in every dark corner, but it's also what being alive is. You know, we, we're not dying every second that we're alive. So escaping danger is uh, what I guess Hauling really, really recognizes as uh, what it means to be alive. Yeah, I love that. And I, I like that he uses mundane examples. Like, it, yeah. Well, it is true that the most dangerous activity we do is get into our car. That, that, is, that is statistically true. <laughs> but I like that he said like the example of falling in love because yeah. that is true. You have to expose yourself. It's such a vulnerable position to be in whenever uh, that happens. And I like how he uses that for exploration um, yeah. to, to explore love or to explore um, being much more vulnerable and being... Uh, open to all of those possibilities or avenues. Yeah, I think it's really cool. You know, the idea that obviously escaping death means you're alive, but uh, just putting yourself out there, um, embracing risk and, and fear, it's all part of, you know, what makes life so fun. So the final scene involving Holling is that he decides to pay respects to Jesse by burying him. Yeah, he's got a nice sort of, you know, like a giant parcel of land, which is covered in stones. And he's got the little placard with the name Jesse on it. And uh, there's some Enya music that plays us out for the episode. That's the uh, that's sort of the final ending piece of the episode. Yeah, really lovely. And I'm glad that he decided to end with that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very ethereal, sort of meditative 
uh, Zen type music. It's it's kind of um, parodied, I guess, today. But uh, yeah, I guess Inya was pretty big back then. Okay, so while Holling is dealing with Jesse, we're going to Maurice, and it seems like that he has some uh, fans. Yeah, so we're introduced to, uh, I guess, an unfortunate stereotype, just like the Asian tourists with cameras running around Sicily taking pictures of K-Bear. But no, yeah, they actually do recognize Maurice, a fan of his, you know, his days as an astronaut. Yeah, it's pretty appalling how researched, I guess, you know, these uh, these tourists are there. They know a lot about Maurice. They seem to know about not only his days as an astronaut, but his his house. Like, I think they mentioned something about later on his uh, his feature in Home and Garden magazine or something. I, I, I guess, to, like, as a viewer, we're just supposed to, you know, come along for the ride and be like, yeah, I guess he's just well-versed in, like, everything. Like, Maurice, is his, he's got his paws and... Um, all sorts of different avenues. It could be that these tourists, uh, you know, we understand that they come later in the episode, they come to Sicily for other reasons, not specifically for Maurice, but maybe these tourists uh, are, are looking for a vacation. And so when they research Sicily, uh, they find that Maurice lives there. Again, I don't know exactly how they would do this in an age when the internet is not uh, so popular or so in-depth, I guess. It hasn't been around as long. Yeah, that's true. Like, Wikipedia is not there yet. <laughs> yeah. But we could say maybe they did a little more research about Sicily and they found out about Maurice, and that could be how they um, they come to learn so much about him. And they're like, uh, if we're going to go to Sicily, we better, we better check out Maurice while we're there. Yeah, so the actual reason that they're here is because Ron and Eric have set up some sort of a neat little hotel for them. Yeah, it's like we learned throughout the episode that um, man, I always get them confused. I think it's Eric. Maybe it's Ron, but one of them really wanted to cater towards the Japanese market. He apparently he spent some time in Tokyo when he was in the United States Marine Corps, uh, which is another way, you know, he brings that fact up to Maurice and that seems to obviously, you know, it would, it would, uh, garner some respect from Maurice, you know, learning that, um, shoot, is it Ron or Eric? But one of them served, one of the in, served in the uh, in the core. So they have that sort of bond. Simplify, I think, is the closing line of that uh, that scene. Yeah, I think that you know what's really odd in Northern Exposure, and I don't fault them for this because it was filmed uh, so late ago. But there's almost like a fascination with the Japanese people. Like it's an yeah. exotic place, and they they portray them as like. A 180 from what Americans are. And I'm okay with that, like watching it now, but looking at it with 2020 eyes, I'm like, this is kind of strange. Like it almost seems like a fetishization of it. True. We, we touched on it in the first season, um, episode four. Um, what is it? Schemes, dreams and putting greens. And yeah, then that one. Yeah. Because there's like some Japanese businessmen. And then in a recent episode, I think it's, lost and found when Adam is talking about these like uh, baby strollers and it's like a, this very this you mentioned in that episode how uh, sort of even just like consumerism was ruled by this fascination of Japanese products you know this luxurious uh, state-of-the-art uh, product comes from Japan yeah yeah uh, while we're on that same topic of it just really quickly um, whenever uh, the Japanese people are inside, 
Maurice's house and he's kind of giving them the nickel tour and they're exploring it. They stumble upon a picture of Maurice's son, which is uh, referenced in the previous. Yeah, he's a Korean. Yeah, he's Korean. And the Japanese people are depicted as being racist or like mocking toward this Korean person because he's Korean. And I got to say, like, look, I'm not going to deny that there is racism between East Asians, but it is a stereotype, in my opinion. Right. Um, and it's the same thing as being able to say, like, well, aren't all Southerners racist? Like, I read that on the internet. Like, that seems like uh, that's a thing. And, like, and of course, like, I don't think any Southerners would take well to that if I just accused them of being racist because <laughs> yeah. that's, like, the stereotype. So I don't think it's okay to accuse um, Japanese East people, Asians. yeah, of being, yeah. of being... Yeah, and actually, it's Maurice who brings it up. He's like, uh, he sees them... I don't... It's interesting. What do you think the Japanese people they're they're tour the tourists here what do you think their reaction is to the duquan picture because for me it's like obviously they're like excited or, or something about that picture gets them excited and maurice quickly says you know he's like i know there's that stereotype you know i know that you people don't really like koreans but this is my own flesh and blood and i love him so like no quips or else like that's it you're out of my house so maurice is the one who brings it up i couldn't really tell if well, I can say that the the Japanese man who's sort of leading the tourists around, later he's like the translator for Maurice, uh, he does show respect to Maurice. He's like, of course, you know, like, we don't mean to judge uh, your son because he's Korean. But uh, do you think that the that the Japanese tourists in this episode are represented as being racist to Koreans or just excited that Maurice has a, a an East Asian son? Oh, uh, I read the scene as them actually being racist toward them, but it's not because they actually were. It's just that the writer of the episode made them be racist. Like he depicted mm. them to be, because it looks like they're shameful whenever Maurice uh, reprimands them on that. So I don't yeah. think that like it's Maurice jumping the gun and assuming that they're racist is that they actually are showing racism. And then Maurice is kind of like, being the backbone and pushing back against it, but just the whole situation of that shouldn't have come up in the first place. Like I don't. <sighs> well, I think it's better if, um, and, and I don't, I don't know. It's hard. I guess it's hard for me to say uh, this sticking point. If the tourists were actually racist, or if uh, Maurice just assumed they were, I can't say one way or the other. Maybe we'd have to watch the scene again. But I'm hoping, and I think it's better if it's just Maurice is jumping the gun. Uh, even as bad as that is, you know, Maurice is the one who's always depicted as the bigot and sort of learning from his mistakes. So it's not like, it's almost as if I'm saying like he gets a pass because like we know that whatever he says is going to be wrong. Either way, you know, it may be better if if Maurice is the one bringing it up, but either way, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that this stereotype is being um, perpetuated, even if it's recognized in the show as wrong they're still sort of perpetuating that that stereotype right yeah yeah okay this will be like my last final thing about it but why did the japanese people have to go to sicily alaska to go experience japanese things like i I don't understand that yeah so the accommodations yeah like the way that uh ron and eric have made their bed and breakfast is basically like a sushi restaurant and what you're saying is like why they're going for a vacation they don't want to like go to experience sushi you know they, they have that in yeah, japan yeah that's why i didn't understand I was like wait wait like what why would i travel like thousands of miles 
to go be exactly where I ended up at. Like this makes no sense. So it's either Ron or Eric, but they they their defense is it's like we're trying to accommodate them. You know, we know that a lot of these, um, and again, I also want to talk about this, but he says the reason why these uh, Japanese tourists like to come, you know, is because it's the the Aurora Borealis. They like to see the Aurora Borealis. And we wanted to separate our business um, from other similar businesses in the north. Uh, you know, Sicily's not sort of a big draw, but if we can accommodate them properly, they'll probably want to come here rather than just any other, you know, bigger name in on the map, you know. But I agree with you because, sure, there's a difference between accommodating and also just like, there's no way that their sushi is going to be better than Japanese sushi, right? <laughs> Yeah, or yeah, things and they're like, like that. They're like performers. They're putting on shows. Yeah, they're like the the geisha performer type. It just seems like they're kind of putting on a show that's not a hundred percent true. Well, speaking about one hundred percent not true, the Aurora Borealis thing is actually not true either. Yeah, that was brought on by tourism. I was I was going to uh, pivot to that. Yeah. So what have you what have you learned about the myth that they uh, that they perpetuate in this episode is that Japanese tourists like to. Uh, see the you know visit the aurora borealis and see it because they have um a belief in their culture that if you were to conceive a child beneath the aurora borealis the the northern lights that child will be gifted yeah no that's totally false um that was just easily propagated because people didn't understand japanese culture so it was easier to make up a lie about them and then suddenly like the lie bought itself and it like yeah. It, it just kept like snowballing from there to where like people weren't able to discern true from false. And then it kind of just started from there, but like it has no real basis. There's a, um, from what I was reading, the earliest, uh, perhaps the earliest account of this may have started back in 1989. And, um, you know, the writer of this episode said that he had uh, read about it in an Alaska magazine in 1991. Um, and this episode obviously broadcasts in 92. So it started, you know, maybe it started kind of in the late 80s. Uh, but I feel like this episode probably perpetuated that myth uh, in a large way. And then, of course, uh, just tourism is is a way to keep drumming that up. God, times were simpler back then before the <laughs> Internet. Like you can just literally make up anything as long as you just publish it in a magazine and it looks official. <laughs> like anything could fly. Yeah. There's a really good quote in this article, too. I like, um, it's often mistakenly attributed to Mark Twain or Winston Churchill, but uh, the quote belongs to uh, the 19th century Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon. He said, a lie travels around the world while truth is putting on her boots. You know, it suggests that uh, once a lie is like set in motion, it's kind of hard to stop it. Yeah, and it's uh, truer today than it ever was. <laughs> um okay so let's um let's see what's going on with maurice he throughout the episode um because he doesn't really like ron and eric for homophobic reasons he doesn't want to give a talk to these uh, japanese people even though they obviously really admire him uh but he finally does abdicate and he decides to give the talk i think anytime maurice is like speaking in a public setting for a long time it starts to get boring you know but i actually really do like his story about the um about alan shepherd and the the mixed cocktail do you remember this yeah 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 i like that story as well and it's such a traditional storytelling thing to end on a button that says like and it was the best 
blank <laughs> yeah. that I ever had. Like yeah. that's just like I think I mean it's corny, but like it, it works if you're speaking to like a large number of people because then people feel included. So then they're just like, yeah, like that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is a pretty fun story. Yeah. You know, after that punchline, oh, it's pretty cool too because he says the punchline, Ron and Eric start laughing really loud and all the tourists are a little confused, but then the the sort of lead um, lead tourist, he does the translation and they all laugh as well. But um, at the next part of Maurice's speech, he begins to really lose the crowd because uh, you can see directly behind him through the windows that the northern lights are like flickering and dancing and uh, Ron and Eric you know, or apologetic, you know, say something like, you know, unfortunately we got to a late start and, you know, they're really here for the Aurora Borealis. And that's when they sort of, I think that's, they don't mention it earlier in the episode, but the reason why they, uh, the whole copulation underneath the Northern Lights, that's explained in this scene. Right, right. And I, I'm still not entirely too sure on this, but I, are, are they copulating in the hotel or outside? Because it looks like they're leaving to go outside. No, they're, they're doing it in, because I think Maurice says under the same roof. Uh, it's, yeah, it's yeah, a, he says the same roof. They have their rooms there, so they're, I imagine they're going to go do it in privacy. But it seems like if we take the myth at face value. <laughs> it's not real, like, Charles. I, I know it's not real, but like when the rays of the Aurora Borealis that it would be like shine down on the people and that's what imbues the child with special powers. Like how, how's it going through the roof? Like how, that doesn't make any sense right there. It's magical. You know, that's how, <laughs> uh, well, anyway, after that scene, it's, I think the last time we see Maurice is he, uh, he's like, I got to give you credit, Ron and Eric, you know, even though I'm a homophobe, um, you guys made a lot of money and you, it's because you're smart and you're good businessmen. So, yeah. Yeah, he kind of has like that acceptance of them. Like we talked about earlier, that's like his uh, his final frontier is, is his bigotry. He's <laughs> still he's trying, trying to, to conquer. Uh, conquer that, yeah. Yeah, but otherwise it's, um, I mean, that's as best as you're ever going to hope for. It was this conclusion for Maurice. Yeah, well, let's move on to our last storyline. This is the storyline that I, when I recall this episode, uh, this is the storyline that stands out the most to me. It's this, uh, the opening bite that we played earlier in this episode. Maggie uh, is delivering a package that seems to have traveled the world and no one is claiming it. Here's a little sound bite uh, when Maggie first delivers the package to Ruth Ann's, uh, I, guess, I guess she's sort of like the post office, right? Yeah, it's shown in the earlier episode that downstairs is where like a bunch of like lost and found items are, but like also where packages are. Yeah, and that's you know that's where everyone goes to pick up their mail. But um, yeah, so here's the uh, little conversation that Maggie and Ruthann have. Hi, Ruthann. Oh, hi, Maggie. Mail's in. Good. Listen, do you know McWilliams? Who? Richard McWilliams. I don't think so. What's the address? Just Richard McWilliams, Sicily, Alaska. Oh, odd. Look at all that postage. Uh-huh. Thailand, Luxembourg, Sierra Leone. Wow, this box has been around. Why is it other country's stamps are so beautiful and ours are so blah? Bali. I've always wanted to go to Bali. I like the little thoughts in this scene, you know, like the little personal asides. Maggie says, why is it that stamps from other countries always look so much prettier, you know, much more colorful? And uh, Ruthann is, you know, imagining Bali. She's like, I've always wanted to go to Bali. <laughs> what uh, what country's currency is your favorite? 
currency. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's kind of hard to pick a favorite, but uh, I guess it's easy to say that basically a lot of countries that aren't the United States have have very colorful currency. Ours is just kind of green. Yeah, ours is, I, I guess, like what Maggie says, is kind of boring in that regard. Um, it has a lot of historical context to it. Well, then again, I think everybody's currency does. But but Maggie's talking about postage, not about currency. Oh, you're right. <laughs> but um, still, I mean, I, I don't know. I just think, um, I don't know. I'm not a stamp collector, you know, so I don't know how colorful uh, the stamps are or were. Maybe they were more boring in the 90s. But I feel like stamps come in all shades and shapes and sizes. But uh, still, I imagine um, looking at a lot of foreign stamps uh, all on the same package would be pretty fascinating as compared to just uh, I, Maggie's probably always looking at the same postage every day. Mm, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but Shoot. I didn't mean to derail your currency conversation. No, 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 no. It's all right. Because <laughs> that, that, that is more of a, um, yeah, more of a stark contrast, I think, between U.S. currency and, and other nations. Yeah, I agree. I'm a big fan of the Canadian dollar. Yeah, I got to look that up. What does that look like? Um, uh, it looks like Monopoly money. <laughs> Yeah, it sure does. Super colorful. So the package belongs to Richard McWilliams, and he hasn't picked up the package yet, but Ruth Ann comments that, well, if he wants it, he's going to have to come to my store to pick it up. Yeah, and Chris goes on the radio, on the air, asking for Richard McWilliams to retrieve the package from Ruth Ann's store. It's pretty clear, probably because the town is so small and because nothing has happened um, for a certain period of time, that no one's going to come for the package. So Maggie begins uh, by asking Joel to x-ray the package, and he's uh, opposed to this idea. Yeah, he thinks that 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 sacrifices his medical integrity by using the x-ray machine for any other purposes other than medical reasons. Yeah, he brings up that argument. He's like, I will x-ray a patient, but not uh, a cardboard box. Um, also, he brings up the fact that it's a federal crime uh, to to look at someone, you know, open someone else's mail. Uh, but I think it's funny the insults that Maggie throws at him. She says, you know, like humans have inquiring minds and a thirst to know. You're just a thing, <laughs> a rock, a shoe, a two by four, a person with absolutely no imagination and curiosity. Yeah, it's another classic Maggie berating Joel, and she does that so much and just really hammers on him for being responsible yeah. which i i get there's supposed to be a dichotomy between the two characters like one is more outgoing one is much more reserved but i feel like how has joel not snapped yet like in, in, in like the daily interactions like god damn like i'm just being responsible i think it's great uh, i think you're right like in a real world sure but i think it's great though because i don't think we've had these sort of and you know joel does the same thing to maggie too but um, they're kind of back and forth a lot, but I don't think we've had a lot of these little quarrels uh, recently between them, or they haven't been as frequent. But you know, this just goes back to the idea that this is a spec script, and uh, Jeffrey Fleming, the um, the writer, you know, would have been drawing from his favorite episodes uh, from earlier episodes. So taking taking these tropes that he's seen again and again in the earlier seasons, and uh, trying to inject that back in the way. Uh, you know, 
Maggie and Joel operate around each other. Mm. Yeah, and you're totally right on that of him trying to like find tropes from the past and injecting them into now because there's even a town hall meeting yeah. to decide what to do with this box. So yeah, before the town hall meeting, we we played the the very opening bite happens because uh, Maggie behind Joel's back goes to, I believe she has like a friend at the Sitka airport, like security, and uh, her friend does the x-ray for her. So she's got an x-ray despite uh, Joel's help or um, resistance. And uh, they're looking through the contents. Joel then suggests, you know, you need to get a CT scan or, you know, just just open the box. That's the only way to to know. But um, before we actually go to the um, the town hall meeting, in that scene, I like that uh, you get to actually see the x-ray they're looking at. And earlier in the episode, before they had an x-ray, you know, Maggie is shaking the box. She thinks that there might be some wooden chess pieces inside. Ed says uh, maybe it's a tackle box. Marilyn says seashells. But in the scene where you, where you see the x-ray, I think it's pretty clear you can see a conch cell, right, on the x-ray. Like everyone's looking straight at it. That looks like a conch shell, right? Oh, really? I didn't didn't pick that up. (laughs) I could tell from the x-ray that much. And later on, when they do open the box, spoiler alert, there is a conch shell inside. I think Maggie says conch shell. I'm not really sure the right pronunciation. Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird. It's it's conch, right? With a C-H. Help me out. Google. (laughs) Holy moly. Maggie's actually right. (laughs) Yeah. Conch. What? What? (laughs) No, like, pronounce. Hang on, hang on. This changes everything. Yeah. Hey, I mean, Google says so. We'll play it for you in the uh, in the episode. We'll play the pronunciation now. Conk. That's like I've gone I've gone this long thinking it was conch. But I guarantee you, if you polled like <laughs> ten million Americans, like nine million would say conch. Nine point nine million. That many, I'm I'm so sure that that At least, many people would you think know it's in conch. our bubble in our bubble. Yes, it's I've heard conch a lot. But uh, what are we? We're just like some dumb southerners. <laughs> I, oh my god! I can't believe okay. this conk. We gotta, yeah, we gotta get off of this. Let's just keep moving. <laughs> so sorry, I've kind of been stalling us, but they do go to a town hall meeting. Yeah, and I really like that town hall meeting. Like once again, it's differing ideas clashing with each other, and I like that Chris kind of takes both sides. Yeah, like, he is going to defend Joel and his responsible reasonings, and then he'll flip it right around and be like, "No, no, no, we need to explore. Like that's what we're meant to be." Yeah, that's true, and it's very reminiscent of like uh, War and Peace. Uh, is that the one? No, 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 no. The body in question, where they really have like a standoff. Chris and Joel kind of speak differing opinions. Uh, but you're right. In this episode, Chris is uh, very supportive of. He's bolstering both sides, maybe playing a little bit of devil's advocate, but it's kind of, he's in support of of both sides of the argument, though I think by the end, he's very much like charismatically leading everyone to to choose, yes, let's open the box. That is, thank God he used his powers for good, because uh, <laughs> that was like a Jonestown situation, he'd be like, we need to explore the afterlife. <laughs> yeah, I think they would all, they all ate it up, you know, they all loved it in the town. They all drank the Kool-Aid. We mentioned that Edna Hancock, the real mayor of Sicily, is is not present in the episode. The person leading the town hall meeting is Shelley. It's funny. She says, you know, the real mayor's not there. And the old mayor, Holling, she's not, uh, he's not there. But because I'm the 
old mayor's wife or almost wife, you know, it's a very tenuous <laughs> uh, relationship to this uh, position of power, but uh, she's there. She's leading the meeting. Yeah. And ultimately, they decide to go with opening the box. They want to definitively answer the question, which goes back to the final frontier. Like we were saying, like the only way to really go through it is to actually do it. So yeah, no fear, box, no um, no vacillating, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this box, they ultimately end up opening, but then it turns out that the box was from a small child that was just wanting to explore. So in the hopes of exploring, he would send his package off to different countries and they would kind of like pay it forward and it would just go to other countries and they would put their own trinkets inside it and then they would send to another country yeah. right there. It's pretty awesome. It's a great little uh, time capsule, you know, like little it's project like a for a kid. Capsule. Yeah. It's a really um, sort of heartfelt scene. You know, we get to read the letter from Richard McWilliams. It's sort of written in a very childlike tongue, you know, and it's cute and it's hopeful. And uh, what really what really hit me was uh, there's a bit in the letter where, where Richard writes, grownups are lucky because they get to go wherever they want. Kids don't. And that even relates to the story that, uh, that Chris is reading, you know, Paddle by the Sea. Paddle to the Sea? Paddle to the Sea. Yeah. Which, by the way, is written by the author's, the author's name is Hauling C. Hauling, spelled like, spelled like Hauling, Ben Coor. Wait, wait, wait. Like, his first and last name is Hauling? Yeah. Uh, I must have been rough on the playground. <laughs> But yeah, I thought it was a really nice parable to paddle to the sea. And I like that the box is a journey. So this final frontier of sorts, it has no ending. It's constantly exploring. And that's a statement by itself. Like it constantly, perpetually is going forward. And it doesn't stop. Just like how Hauling needs to keep going forward. He doesn't stop at just the literal bear. He's going to go find wherever the next manifestation of Jesse finds itself. And maybe Maurice also needs to move forward and move beyond just homophobia. He needs to work on other progressive agendas or accepting people who they are. So like it has like the entire episode all ties together neatly with this box. It's all convergence of physical exploration and spiritual exploration. Yeah. Again, I think it's a really wonderful project. It's a, it's a great idea, but we learned something in, or at least according to the show, in, in one of the, in the town hall meeting, you know, Joel suggests that they don't have the authority to open the parcel. And he asks, you know, Ruthann, she says, well, what normally happens if no one claims the package, it gets after like 15 days or something, it gets sent to the dead parcel branch in San Francisco. And then it's opened by authorized personnel. And then Maggie then says, you know, if it's going to get opened anyway, we should be the ones opening it. But um, the reason I bring it up is I think while it's a great idea, a great project to send this uh, parcel around the world, I think it has a very high risk chance of getting sent to the dead parcel branch. Probably a better way to do this would be to send it to um, whoever receives the package, sends it to a friend or someone that they actually know in another part of the globe, or just mail it to just look up a listing for a business or something uh, in another part of the globe and mail it there. You know, just give it, send it to someone who's actually going to receive it. Because if no one picks it up, it's just going to get, it's going to die, dead parcel branch. 
Yeah, you're right. Though I think that knowing who you're sending it to kind of defeats the purpose, though. I think you're right. So I think what I would, my best suggestion would be, uh, you know, kind of like what they do in the episode, pick a spot on the globe, they spin the globe, Ed sticks his finger down and it's going to Barwana, India. And rather than uh, address it to Richard McWilliams, who's who doesn't live there, I don't think. Uh, maybe he does. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, rather than that, just list um, like a business or something because someone will mm. find it, they'll open it and they'll be like, what? This is, this is not meant for me. And then they'll, they'll read the letter. Hopefully if they can speak English and uh, they'll figure it out, you know. Did you know that the United States Postal Service Mail Recovery Center, they're no longer called like uh, dead letters. They call them like un, unrecoverable letters. Okay. But the, the recovery center is located in Atlanta, Georgia. But ever since April 2013, They've actually held auctions on the materials lost in the U.S. That's awesome. What is it like? A is it closed parcels? It's like guess what's in the box and pay this much, or is it? Oh opened? my god, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that is amazing. But no, it's like an unclaimed mail auction, and I'm I'm both impressed and also kind of flabbergasted that they would do that. Because what happens if it's something <laughs> sentimental, but it like looks or personal, like, you know, like personal information? I guess they couldn't rightfully um, auction that. But yeah, but that is, uh, that is just kind of a neat, weird idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. So, you know, before they send it off to Barwana, India, they have to decide what they're going to put into the package. Like what is a perfect representation of Sicily? Uh, I think Ed suggests a videotape of the Magnificent Seven. And uh, I think Dave suggests maybe some dried mushrooms. Um, and <laughs> I really love uh, Ruthann. You know, they're, they obviously can't make up their mind, but Ruthann is like, um, should we reconsider the moose? And she holds like a wood carving of a moose and Joel is like shaking his head. He's like, no moose, no moose. I don't get that. I think the moose is a perfectly <laughs> adequate... Well, I, uh, trinket. I think it's funny because, yeah, I think it would be what what um, fans would fans of the show would recognize. A moose is the symbol of northern exposure, but people of Joel's mind would say, "No, a moose is not indicative of northern exposure because there's only one moose in the entire uh, series, and it <laughs> happens in the opening titles and in episode four. Actually, coincidentally, we were talking about the uh, the Japanese businessman in that episode." Uh, mm. so it's, I think it's funny, you know, <laughs> that a moose seems to be the symbol, but there's still an argument that people just get, it's like, please stop beating us over the head with the moose. No moose, no moose. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Meta commentary right yeah. there. <laughs> so it's a great little, yeah, meta commentary. But, um, I think it's brilliant that the item that they decide to put in the parcel is, uh, Joel brings it up. He says a thermometer. Okay. It's been in the mouth of everybody in town. Uh, so it's got like, you know, part of everyone here and, you know, from an outsider who lives in the world of Northern exposure, like the universe, they may not recognize that Sicily is about a small town and a doctor, but for people watching the show, it's the perfect representation of the TV show, Northern exposure. And in Sicily, it's a great representation of what Sicily is according to us, the audience, because we're only in Sicily when we're with Joel. Um, from his first day, you know, there, that's when the show starts. Unfortunately, I think the show, we talked about this, but it sort of steers away a little bit from Joel as a central character later on. But, uh, this is an example of Joel, the protagonist sort of shaping the narrative and 
and directing the course of the story. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that that's an elegant solution that he came up with, and it was only Joel that had proposed it right there. So before we jump to our guest analyst on this episode, there's one last thing that I'd like to bring up, a little soundbite that we can play. This is from the town hall meeting, Joel's argument for you know why they should not open the parcel. And thankfully, they were right. They opened the parcel. They did the right thing. It was what the parcel wanted, you know? But uh, I've always, I think this little monologue that Joel gives, I think it's really what shaped my opinion from a long time ago, you know, my reverence for the United States mail. I'll, I'll just play it. Listen, now I know I was the one who put forth the original idea of opening the package, but I was speaking hypothetically, theoretically. Okay, 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 Flashman, you're on the record, you're off the hook. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't believe in blind obedience to the law. In my time, I've ignored stop signs, I've jaywalked, I've had open fires on Jones Beach, but this, this is the U.S. mail. And since I was old enough to lick a stamp, I was taught that it's a sin to so much as hold someone's letter up to the light. I was inculcated with the sanctity, the, the inviability of the mail. Way to go, little buddy. Give it up. Here, here. I think it's just seeing the fervor and, and how passionate Joel is to defend the security of the mail. Like he goes on to say, it's not about the law. You know, like the law, sometimes, sometimes you got to break the law sometimes, right? But this is not about that. This is about something deeper, some absolute truth and honor. This, uh, you know, a symbol of sacred trust, I think. I don't know if Joel says that or if Chris does. Yeah, it's like a belief in the institution. Like he believes in a medical institution and in, yeah. uh, in science. And in this one, he believes in the symbol of the United States Postal Service and the men and women that work there and how they would always deliver your mail, rain, snow, sleet. Uh, whatever obstacles in the way. And I, I, I guess he just has a reverence for it and a great respect for wanting to carry that forward. And yeah, I, I agree with Joel to some degree. Like, I, I think that you're not just committing a crime right here uh, against um, Richard. You're committing a crime against the United States Postal Service. It's an and idea. Yeah. It's yeah. Like you got to protect that, that sanctity or something. But, uh, yeah, again, thankfully they were right because the, the box did want to be opened. And uh, if they had just sent it to the dead parcel branch, it wouldn't have gone on to India, you know, or probably would have never made it back to Richard, unfortunately. But uh, do you think Richard ever will receive this parcel, you know, in the end? Maybe that's not the point, but do you think he'll get it? Was there a return address on it? Uh, no, it just said Richard McWilliams, Sicily, Alaska. And he doesn't that... like yeah, then probably not. <laughs> I think you actually need... Well, no, no, you're right. I guess you could. Like, whoever last received the package does just write it out to the Sicily post office. But even then, like, you still need an address for Richard. Like, you can't just write, like, Richard, Sicily, Alaska. Like, the Postal Service, not they're not going to take that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of upsetting to think that Richard may never get this parcel. But also... In the end, it's kind of about the bigger idea, maybe about just getting it um, sort of like, uh, you know, it brings it back to paddle to the sea. You know, this little boy couldn't make this voyage, but he knows that he's going to send his uh, his little toy boat off on an adventure that maybe one day he'll take, but not today. Okay, so we're going to do something that's a little unorthodox for the podcast. We're going to pause the episode here and come back with a bonus episode later in the week that will include our guest analyst's commentary on the episode. 
We had some slight setbacks this week, but figured since we've got everything edited except for the guest analysis, we didn't want to break from our normal release pattern. So we hope you enjoyed our thoughts on episode 20, The Final Frontier, but stick around in a few days. You'll hear what our guest has to say about it. The podcast was edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And if you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>